This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here is your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Francesca Gino is a behavioral scientist and the Tandon Family Professor of Business Administration in the Negotiation, Organizations, and Markets Unit at the Harvard Business School. She's been honored as one of the world's top 40 business professors under 40 and as one of the world's 50 most influential management thinkers. She's the author of the books Sidetracked and Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. In this episode, we discuss what it means to be a rebel, some misconceptions about rebels, how being a rebel is good for business, and how to cultivate rebelliousness, even in your children, especially the talent of curiosity. Francesca also responds to a couple of great questions from listeners who called in to the radio show. So now, get set to listen to and learn from someone who has produced a great body of work and focused it on this wonderful idea of cultivating rebel talent. It's Francesca Gino. Francesca Gino, hi. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. So Rebel Talent is is about the idea of breaking the rules to transform and create in work and in other parts of life. So how did you get into this topic? What led you to it? For many years, I studied rule-breaking in the moral sphere, people who cheat, steal, and lie. And I explore why this happens, even to people who have no intention of behaving badly, and what is it that organizations could do to prevent it. Hmm. And in time, I really began to notice a different type or a different side of rule-breaking, people who were driving positive change by not following the rules. And these people didn't lie or cheat. Instead, they were quite genuine in their commitment and spirit of rebellion. And the results were all positive, often uh, cases of innovations or a great change for the organizations they were working with. So can you just say a little bit more about the earlier work that, that really sprung into uh, the study of rebel talent, yeah. the rule breaking? How, how did you get into that? What attracted you to that idea? Often in my research, uh, the ideas come from being curious about the world and just really paying attention to what was going on. So yes. these are the years of Enron and all mm-hmm. sorts of other organizations that were experiencing all sorts of corrupt behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so I really got intrigued by why is it that we used to see, or some might argue, still see so much misconduct in the world, and Mm -hmm. why is it that more generally even good people who seem to have good intention end up doing uh, bad things that are Mm -hmm. clearly not Mm -hmm. uh, aligned with their moral compass. And so a lot of the research was inspired by events 
and the news. <laughs> of course. Well, uh, the, the greatest social scientists are very curious and kind of nosy people. They want to get into other people's <laughs> business, right? Uh, right. So, uh, so you were studying the, uh, the, the sort of dark side of rule-breaking and rebellion. Is that right? Exactly. And I started noticing that there were also cases of rule-breaking that were not destructive, that were not negative for organizations or society, but they were rather positive. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give us uh, one or two of those examples that really struck you? Yeah, the one uh, that really was the one where I found myself saying, "Okay, I'm going to write this book." That is the example that really brought everything together for me. Is um, the story of an Italian chef. His name is Massimo Bottura, and he's the chef of a three Michelin star restaurant in Modena, Italy. And I discovered him by taking a stroll in one of the local libraries, um, bookstores in Cambridge. And I saw this book that looked a little bit strange. It was bigger than usual, middle in color. And the title said, Never Trust a Skinny Italian Chef. And Never <laughs> Trust... A skinny Italian chef. That sounds like wise advice. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> and being Italian, I was really intrigued. And of course. So I started flipping through the pages, and what I saw were images of traditional Italian dishes that were looking quite yummy, and they were quite beautiful in the way they were put together, but they really didn't look like the type of dishes I grew up with. And the book Hmm. told the story of a person, of the chef, who went to a really interesting context, which is that of traditional Italian dishes, Mm -hmm. and studied the recipe really carefully, but then reinvented them. So he started asking questions about why is it that we make the dish this way? Maybe it made sense 30 or 40 years ago, but not now. So questioning the status quo was uh, an an important uh, early uh, start to generating innovative ways of doing things. And the reason why it was so striking as an example is that I know the Italians pretty well, and I know that there are lots of rules when it comes to cooking, and I also know that we cherish our old ways, especially when it comes to recipes that have been passed on for generations. And so it was a really refreshing and striking example of a person who has been incredibly successful, mm-hmm. uh, but who didn't take things for granted, didn't take traditions for granted, studied them carefully and then started reinventing them. So he had to break some rules. Exactly. He has this three words that he uses a lot where he says, break, transform, create. And in fact, when I asked him what inspired him in his way of thinking about innovation, he told me about an artist, a Chinese artist, Ai Weiwei, and he showed me the picture of one of his um, uh, pieces of art where you see the artist breaking a 2,000-year-old vase. Hmm. And he asked himself the question, why would a person do such a thing? And in the gesture, he was trying to be constructive rather than destructive of generating something new that is based on quite a respect for traditions, but moving away from uh, things that we tend to take for granted. But the people who cherished that 2,000-year-old vase probably were, well, shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Or upset. (laughs) And angry. Uh, So how did this artist manage to convey his 
his idea of sort of creative destruction in a way that uh, that allowed him to well express his art and, and and for it to be accepted, or did he? Yeah, so it's actually his story is quite similar to that of Botura. So if you think about his own restaurant, is struggled at the beginning. In fact, the tradition-bound Italians were not too happy about the fact that he opened a restaurant where he was trying to reinvent tradition. Mm -hmm. And when I asked him about what was really critical to him persisting through the Mm -hmm. challenge, through this, uh, he called it more than resistance. So people were really fighting against him. He called it what? More than resistance. More than resistance. It was real fight. Resistance (laughs) plus. Real fight from the tradition by the Italians. Mm But um, he told me at, uh, um, about a summer that he spent at Il Bulli and what What's he learned uh, from Il Bulli, from um, the chef and owner of Il Bulli, mm-hmm. uh, also another famous restaurant in Spain mm-hmm. at the time, was to really uh, make sure that he felt the freedom to express himself. And so mm-hmm. after that summer, he went back to Modena, he sold everything that he had, and he spent money and time in the restaurant in a way that allowed him to play to his strengths and really express his views. Mm. And then a few months later, the first Michelin star arrived, then the second one, the third. And in 2016, his restaurant became the best restaurant in the world. Amazing. Quite a successful story, but after fighting some resistance. Well, it sounds like he also, at Il Bulli, had a kind of uh, training and uh, socialization that uh, really encouraged him to to take a fresh approach. Do I do I have that right? And yeah. how essential was that in his evolution and his growth as an innovator? Yeah, it was a critical part. One of the quotes that he shared with me when thinking back to his experience at Yubuli was that right away he realized that it was not just about technique and what really changed him was the message uh, of freedom from the chef and owner of Il Bulli, um, the freedom to really feel his own fire. These are his mm. own words. And so to really try to look inside of himself and, and make his thoughts edible. And so it was really a <laughs> message of try to bring yourself uh, into the dishes and have the courage of express your ideas through the dishes in the restaurant. Like all great artists, musicians, performers do, they they become one with their with their creative expressions. And of course, this does apply to other kinds of endeavors. Uh, you're not at the Culinary Institute of America; you're at the Harvard Business School. So, uh, how how do you bring these ideas to business practice? So I started the journey by really trying to understand how these rebels are viewed in business. And Mm -hmm. uh, part of the message with the book was to try to say that we think about rebels the wrong way. We seem to have a very fixed idea of rebels in the business world. So people generally think of Apple visionary Steve Jobs or people like him. Mm -hmm. And these rebels, the stories go, are very creative but also difficult to work with. Sometimes they're even described as control freaks who create mm-hmm. chaos or people you rather not have as a boss or an employee. Mm-hmm. 
And I really thought that we need to shift our thinking because to be a rebel does not mean to be an outcast or a troublemaker. Effective rebels are people who break rules in ways that are positive and productive. Hmm. And so in the journey of working on the book and writing the book, I went to all sorts of businesses outside of Italian cooking Mm -hmm. and actually also tried to intentionally go in different parts of the world to find examples of leaders and organizations that encourage rebelliousness Mm -hmm. and try to understand what seems to be the recipe of success of effective rebels in a way that would allow other organizations and other leaders and other employees to learn from these examples and these stories. And that's that's what we're going to unpack in in the our time together in in the rest of this conversation. I'm I'm curious though uh, if if the essential idea is enabling uh, the free expression freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really at the heart of what we've been doing on this radio show for the last four and a half years, is, is getting at different ways of, of enabling uh, human liberation in, in work and in other parts of life, where you, one can be oneself fully, uh, because that benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what led you to choose you know, rebel as the focal sort of language as opposed to freedom? I chose rebel, and I actually quite I've I've become to love this uh, word mm-hmm. because these are people who are fighting against our human nature. Mm-hmm. So when I think about the five talents that I identified that seem to be common characteristics or common talents that these rebels have, in order to really use them on a regular basis, you need to fight against something that doesn't come natural to us. So just to give you an example, and Please. I know that we'll dig a little bit deeper. One of the talents that rebels have is this talent for novelty, the desire to uh, experience uh, new activities, to be challenged, to grow um, in a way that doesn't come natural to us because most people really like to fall back on uh, familiar routines, things that we know rather than activities that are going to make us uncomfortable because we have not experienced that before. And so there is that sense of fight that mm. seems to uh, be quite important to this aspect of breaking rules. Um, and so the label rebels seem to fit ah. this idea quite nicely. So can you give us a quick rundown, Francesca, of what those five common talents are that you found in your research? Yes, the five talents are the talents for novelty, so having this preference for the new and unfamiliar rather than comfortable routines or activities that we know well. The second is a talent for curiosity. Um, Curiosity is a really interesting one because we are born with it. In fact, if you look at the data, it peaks at the age four and five, and then it declines from there. So hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about that. Hmm. Then there is the talent for perspective. As humans, we tend to come to the table and look at problems, usually only from one angle, which is our own perspective. Mm -hmm. And rebels instead seem to be able to look at problems from multiple angles and multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. Then there is the talent for uh, authenticity. So is this ability that rebels have to make themselves vulnerable, um, to Mm. express their views, their preferences in a way that... 
uh, sometimes requires some courage because that means often going against what others are thinking and doing. Mm-hmm. And one way rebels are authentic is by playing to their strengths rather than dwelling on their weaknesses. Hmm. And finally, there is a talent for diversity, which means that rebels think quite differently about the people they interact with or surround themselves with in a way that allows them to really leverage their differences. So um, the people in their circles are not people who just nod their heads and agree with them, but rather they're people who really challenge their way of thinking because they're just different from them. These are noble qualities uh, that um, most all of us would want to somehow um, cultivate in ourselves. And yet, of course, many among us would have difficulty with, with some or all of these talents. How does your book, your research, uh, help people to nurture these qualities to cultivate the rebel within and enable them to bring more of their full expression of their particular talents or gifts to the world, to their work, to the and to other parts of their lives? I think the book can help in two main ways. One is that there is sort of a hope, a big hope, that readers are going to feel almost inspired by the stories of these rebels. So I tried to study them carefully, really mm-hmm. learn about them, uh, as I said, across different types of organization. And I myself felt inspired. I myself mm-hmm. find on a daily basis thinking about ways in which I can learn to be uh, more effective rebels, both at work and in life. And second, I tried to identify um, tips for readers. So what are the type of behaviors that these rebels use if they're in fact using a certain talent? And so part of the idea mm-hmm. of not only bringing research in the book, but different stories and different examples mm-hmm. is to allow for them to say, okay, I have a, um, a little bit of a, a set of ideas, guidelines that I can use in order to really embrace these ideas. I am curious to know, Francesca, what is it that you have been inspired by recently in in the research that you're doing on Rebels and and your talk about it and what you're discovering as you go around the world uh, speaking about this? What, what, What have you brought home to your own work and life recently? I've changed quite a few things. Uh, in my own way of interacting with other people, in my own leadership, in my own parenting, in my own being a good spouse, uh, as a result of this book and all the conversations that followed. First of all, I've become more aware of the rules that may be implicitly I set for others. Mm. There is a story that I tell in the books that, that is a personal story that I think brings this um, to bear. And it's the story of, at the time, it was um, my four-year-old son who was up for breakfast, so sitting at the counter with a bowl of milk and cereal. And he was looking as if he was thinking very hard about something. And so he turned to my husband and said, Daddy, remember the bottles that we bought for Easter to color eggs? And so my husband went to the cabinet, he opened it up, got the bottles for Alex, brought them back, and said, Alex, what are you going to do with this? And Alex smiled and said, (laughs) I'm going to color my milk. 
And it was really interesting to see the reaction of my husband. His face was completely puzzled, as if he was really confused by what he had just heard. And so he turned to Alex and said, uh, Alex, we don't do that. <laughs> and Alex, being four-year-old, looked back at him and said, why not, Daddy? And my husband looked even Always more a good confused question. Uh-huh. and puzzled <laughs> mm-hmm. by the follow-up question. And then he turned to me and said, Mommy, we don't do this, right? Uh-oh. And it was an interesting moment because as we were having these conversations about whether or not it's right to have a color milk for breakfast, Alex had opened the bottle of the red coloring and he put it in his milk and all of a sudden cereal was swimming happily in pink So milk. he wasn't waiting for permission, obviously. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, this two need to figure it out. <laughs> in the meanwhile, I'm just going to go ahead and try it. But hmm. it was interesting because... Who said that milk for breakfast needs to be white? And it was just a good example that made me smile. Um, it also made me curious. So since then, I've tried all sorts of colors in my milk. And as it turns <laughs> out, it tastes just the same. But if anything, you're starting off the day with a big smile, hmm. uh, eating a colorful breakfast. And so I'm much more aware of the rules that I might be setting for others and be Uh, more curious uh, or more aware of just asking questions around them and make sure that others do the same. You make sure others do the same, that is to say, to be open to different ways of doing things and to be curious as to what they're thinking? That's right. That's right. So try to be more open-minded and really buy into this idea of um, being open to different perspectives. Well, so... Alex is older than four now, mm-hmm. and and does he have any brothers or sisters? Yes, so he's five and a half at the moment with a two-and-a-half-year-old uh, sister, and then another one who's about 14 months. Oh, wow. Wow, so you must be very busy these days, I'm sure. <laughs> um, well, you know, so when Alex is 15, mm-hmm. let's just project into the future, which, of course, you can't do without some difficulty, but just imagine Alex is a teenager. Let's talk about teenage rebellion, which is, of course, par for the course. Um, it's different because this, you know, it's it's no longer about uh, coloring milk. It could be about drugs, sex, other illicit behavior. Um, how and and perhaps taking this, you know, into other domains beyond parenting. Um, I, I can imagine, and I'm sure you've run into this, people saying, well, you can't, you can't let, you know, you gotta have rules. Come on, Francesca. Mm-hmm. You can't, you gotta create, you know, create a containment so that people can grow up and understand what, you know, society allows and doesn't. How do you sort of manage that tension? Yeah, I'm actually quite in agreement with something that Adam Grant, one of your colleagues, says quite often that uh, you should make sure that you set the values and focus much more on that than on the rules. Mm -hmm. And I think this uh, rings true for me because when I think about organizations that I studied um, that really encourage rebelliousness, Mm -hmm. I've noticed a couple of interesting things. First, that there is much more clarity and transparency about rules that really should not be touched or broken. Mm -hmm. You just should not go there. 
And it's quite amazing. You go around those type of organizations and everybody knows that those rules should not be touched. But every, in every other context, instead, you can uh, stay open-minded and question rules. So just to give you a concrete example, yes, one of please. the businesses that come to mind is Aerial Investment. This is a money management firm based in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the leaders really want people to embrace these talents, be authentic, have perspective, um, really leverage differences, stay curious. And yet, you can ask anybody in the firm and they would tell you that, for instance, when a letter goes out to a client, there is a rule that three different people need to look at it Hmm. to make sure that there are no typos or uh, making sure that everything is clear. And so everybody knows that that is a rule that needs to be there, uh, that is consistent with the values of the organizations and should not be broken. So that's quite important to have that type of clarity and transparency. But also, there is almost a sense from the people working in these organizations that given the fact that rebelliousness is encouraged, there is a lot of trust that is put in your hands. Hmm. And as a result of that, people seem to have a very good judgment. So it's not about breaking rules for the sake of breaking rules. It's really breaking rules that, in fact, should be questioned because they keep them and others back. The, the rules are, are inhibiting uh, mm-hmm. growth or positive innovation. Yeah. So if I were to bring all of this back to Alex, I would hope that, yes, in a sense, that, that there is, from my um, standpoint, that type of clarity and transparency, and I instill the value such that you can question and break rules, but in a way that is constructive rather than destructive. Uh, that is to say, consistent with a certain set of values about what it means to be a good person, a good citizen, et cetera. Exactly. And that is, of course, our, our lifelong project as parents is to instill those values uh, through our, our, own, our own model and, and all the different ways that we, we try to guide and, and nurture our children. I want to make sure listeners get a chance to hear directly from you as to what are the your, your like most valuable tips as you can uh, as you can try to get to the you know the the top set of them. I know it's difficult to do this sometimes for for each of these common talents. If you were to sit somebody down and you had five minutes and to say, okay, here's some stuff you should do if you wanted to uh, develop these talents to bring out the you know the good rebel in you. What would you tell them? So at first, I I might share my experience and say that for me, living like a rebel is a matter of trying little things. So for people who are going to check out the book, this example might make sense. So for example, I often show up with the red sneakers in formal settings. But it also means having a broader commitment to exploring ways of being in the world that may at first feel wrong. Mm -hmm. So you said something earlier that is very true, that rebelling requires some courage of putting ourselves out there and being okay feeling uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. uh, because that's often what we experience when we break the rules. I would also say that it's helpful to know what our starting point is, since Uh, We all have these talents, and so it's a matter of Hmm. knowing what we tend to use uh, more often. So I prepared a little test, a little assessment that people can take for free. So if they go to the book website, rebeltalents.org, they're going to find a set of questions, Mm -hmm. and they're going to discover which type of rebel they are, and Hmm. receive some concrete tips after that. And for people who 
aren't sure. They just don't know whether this is the life that they want to live. I prepared a set of guidelines. So they're called seven days of rule breaking. Hmm. And it's something that I tried on myself before putting it out there. And Uh if people are like me after trying the rebel life, you won't want to go back. You won't want to go back. You won't want to go back. Once a rebel, always a rebel. Once a rebel, you're always trying to be a rebel. Ah, okay. It's a little different, trying to be. It's a continual struggle, isn't it, for most of us? Exactly, exactly. And again, it comes through small things. So, for example, Mm -hmm. I discovered that it's very easy to get in the midst of things and having that approach of executing on my to-do list. And so you're very focused on trying to get... Um, check off item and items from your to-do list. And that often comes at a cost of keeping our curiosity alive, that sense of wonder that we always had when we were little kids. And so one of the things that I do now for myself is not only have my performance goals at work, but also have some learning goals, mm-hmm. things that are going to challenge me and are going to allow me to grow in the work that I do. And how does that ensure that you are cultivating the talents of curiosity, having learning goals. Yeah, so that helps because you shift the focus from just executing and getting things done to allowing for exploring. So often I pick my learning goals such that I feel that challenge of learning something new or going exploring areas that I'm not that familiar with. Mm And it can be something very related to my work or something uh, unrelated. So I wanted to learn um, a year ago about all these new mechanisms to, to understand the way we talk to one another. And so I started collaborating with a person who knows a lot about machine uh, learning Mm -hmm. and algorithms. And we have conversations where I'm trying to learn more from Mm -hmm. uh, what he knows. (laughs) That's a good example. Uh, And for the people who are anxious and afraid of what other people think uh, and are uh, fearing uh, some kind of negative uh, response to their being different, right? Especially at the beginning of one's uh, relationship or the beginning of one's life together as a group where you're just arriving uh, to an organization where there's such a powerful need to be accepted, to feel like you're belonging. How, How do you help people to overcome those tendencies and to still be vital, alive, innovating, bringing their creative newness to the party? What I often tell myself when I'm really trying to overcome some fears is first to remind myself that at the very core, I'm a human being. And things that don't come that naturally to me might bring some fears or some anxiety because they're not as well-tested as other things that I've tried in the past. Mm -hmm. And I also remind myself, which is related to being human, that my intuition is often wrong. Hmm. So, for example, when it comes to being ourselves or making ourselves vulnerable, which is a wonderful way of being authentic, Mm -hmm. we believe that that's the wrong way to go, that others are going to evaluate us negatively or that somehow we're going to make the wrong impression. 
is just the opposite. People actually trust us more. They respect us more when we mm-hmm. make ourselves vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So, well, because you're representing uh, the human experience that they are no doubt uh, you know, able to relate to because everyone feels that way. Exactly, exactly. So in a sense, you're, you're, you're allowing for that human connection that mm-hmm. otherwise is difficult to have. Mm-hmm. So reminding ourselves that often our intuition of what the right behavior or the um, right strategy to use in order to make the good impressions on others or to create the stronger connection is just wrong. Uh, Eddie uh, is calling from Las Vegas. Welcome to Work and Life, Eddie. Yeah, thank you. Tell us, what are you thinking? What's on your mind? Yes, I was just listening to you guys and I was thinking about myself. Um, I've always considered myself a kind of a rebel when I come into a new organization, a new job. And I personally think I commit myself to excellence. So I'm always trying to find ways to improve, which means sometimes it's not going to be doing the same things like they've always been done. So my question is, how do I deal with, you know, when that happens, there tends to be some kind of jealousy from people when Mm -hmm. they start seeing you, that you're coming up with ideas, Mm -hmm. that you're coming up with learning systems and, and being curious about, you know, doing things in different ways. How do I deal with coworkers so I don't I don't feel like I get rejected, but then there's that kind of jealousy that yeah. I sense sometimes. That's a great question, Eddie. Thank you uh, for that question. Francesca, what advice do you have for Eddie? So I have a couple of ideas. One is to really focus on, let's call it delivery. So the way you bring your ideas forward in a way that might be uh, going against what has been done before or that is just novel. And there I think that we can learn a lot from improv comedy. In improv comedy, one of the core principles is this idea of the yes and. Mm -hmm. So whenever you are suggesting an idea or building on a scene, you always start from a point of acceptance of what has been said or done before, and then you add to it, maybe in a way that is going to take the scene in a very different direction. But that type of acceptance before we contribute is actually quite important because it doesn't come across as threatening to people, but rather as let me build on the good foundations that that you created. So thinking about how you can use that idea is quite important. And then I would also think about open it up for them to contribute their views. So as we suggest ideas, we can be asking others what if or what do you think about it in a way that engages them in the conversation and in the ideas that we want to bring forward. And when we do that, it's less threatening again, but also it reduces the sense of uh, envy. And show Mm -hmm. others that you have these good ideas, but also you're not perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Talk about uh, ways in which you had bad ideas in the past or maybe um, ways in which you made bad decisions um, such that you can create that human connection that is quite helpful in bringing others along as we move on mm-hmm. um, a new idea or a new journey. So, so the, the talent of perspective there is really important, isn't it, to, to encourage others to give you a different perspective on your ideas, a way not only to uh, enhance the quality of your idea and to test it, but also to uh, enroll others in, in the, you know, the game you're trying to, to, get, uh, other, to get them to play. 
Exactly. And again, you might have the brilliant idea, but others might have a useful way to make it even better. What do you think, Eddie? Great. That's a good way to think about it. All right. Well, uh, good luck with it. Uh, If you try any of these ideas, give us a call back. Uh, I'd love to hear from you as to what you discover. Thanks so much for calling Work and Life. All right. uh, Tracy is calling from California. Tracy, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you. I'm just fascinated by your research and look forward to reading your book. Um, the, the question I have for you is this. Um, I'm at an executive level, and I, I think I am um, a rebel and uh, basically approach things from the perspective of what could be versus what is. And what I find is sometimes that uh, acceleration that occurs when you are in the discovery conversation is um, often sort of, um, I don't know, sidelined by it being sort of a softer approach. It's not about um, problem solving. It's about visioning. And that's what I find is the most um the greatest opportunity in your conversation is you really are keeping um, the idea of being a visionary person and bringing your whole self to the conversation. How do you shift that to something that's tangible um, so that the executive team doesn't think it's a soft skill and looks at it as a core function of Hmm. really managing through rapid transition? Hmm. Great question, Tracy. I know that's a a lot of stuff. I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. uh, Francesca, what, what advice do you have for Tracy? So I'm wondering whether there are opportunities to use the same type of approach where you ask the why or what if or how might we type of questions, even in situations where the ideas are more at a concrete level. So not only you are allowing for a broad discussion and a vision, but you sort of use the same techniques even when we're at a level of uh, greater concreteness. Um, I don't know if you think that that would be possible, but that would be a way of, um, again, in a sense, using a strength that you seem to have quite naturally, but at a level where it's not just about strategies, but also something more concrete, the day-to-day decisions. What do you think, Tracy? Does that make sense to you, or do you want to f- f- ask a, a follow-up question? The, the only follow-up question I would ask you, and, and I'm sure it's in your book, so I'll have to get that, um, is about how you demonstrated the value of rebel talent, talent, and if it's been monetized in a way that demonstrates it's a worthy uh, approach to um, talent management. So how do you get to the people who are evaluating your future potential uh, to see that your rebel talent is actually something that they should be promoting? Is that another way of characterizing what you're asking, Tracy? Yeah. Yeah, so the data is clearly there. And in fact, I've worked with some leaders in the last few months that were unsure whether to really buy into this idea of rebelliousness, and I gifted them the book. And so there is a lot of data that I talk about in the book that really shows uh, the many ways in which encouraging rebelliousness is good for business and is good also for other people in the business. And one of the ways why that is true is that Um, one of the things that is true about rebels is that they're very engaged in what they do. 
And one of the striking uh, findings about engagement, if you looked at any data from Gallup or other organizations, is that for a lot of people, work simply sucks. It's not a source of joy, it's a source of frustrations. And Rebel don't seem to have that problem at all. And so one of the ways in which uh, you really using these talents on a regular basis help us is that it really engages us in what we do in a way that makes us uh, more productive, uh, have better relationship, more innovative, so all sorts of good benefits. And so some of the leaders need to see and particularly focus on those chapters mm-hmm. where I make the business case for rebelliousness, if you will. So, uh, Tracy, does that help? Yeah, that's perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much for calling Work and Life, Tracy. Really appreciate it. Uh, Francesca, I have a, a couple more questions before we have to wrap up. That, that I'd like to ask you. Um, and that is, uh, w- where is the strongest resistance that you have uh, encountered in this approach to developing talent? That's a very good question. Some of it is fear and the fear of leaders to let go. Mm-hmm. What it means to allow for rebelliousness is that you are trusting employees and colleagues Mm -hmm. um, and believing that they're going to behave in ways that shows commitment to the organizations and that is very much in line with uh, what you want to accomplish as a leader. And so there is that fear of letting go. If you take the talent for curiosity, as we were mentioning earlier, that's a perfect example of a talent that if you were to ask leaders where good ideas or innovations come from, most of them, in fact, in a recent survey, 93% of them said clearly from curious people, and curiosity is vital to organizations. Mm -hmm. But then when you actually ask people how often they feel curious at work, is the minority of them who says that's something that is a common experience in my work. In fact, if I refer back to the uh, recent survey, it was 24% of the people saying that that is a common experience. So that's Mm. a gap and is due to fear of letting go Mm -hmm. and often the wrong mindset about what rebelliousness is going to do for the business. So for Mm -hmm. example, in the case of curiosity, leaders often believe that you're going to end up with chaos or inefficiency and that is right. not everyone true. will be asking questions all the time we'll never get anything done exactly that that is something that i've heard from many leaders and mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be the case and in fact there are lots of good examples of organizations that kept curiosity alive and yet uh, they did quite well and they're doing well uh, in the market and indeed what the first of your five ways to bolster curiosity in your great article in in the harvard business review is to hire for curiosity Exactly. Look for people who seem to have this uh, innate desire to just discover things and put themselves in situations that allow them to explore. And as I said earlier, we were all born with curiosity. So Mm -hmm. it's in us, and it's a matter of making sure that we keep that alive. Now, you want you to get back to what happens to the four- and five-year-olds, why why curiosity declines after that age. So please tell us more about what you've learned in your research and perhaps in your own life as a parent about that. So part of it is where we keep our focus as teachers, as leaders, and often the focus is on the execution or making sure that uh, we 
trained to the test. And so, for mm. example, I remember visiting a school for my son um, about a year or two ago, and I was struck by a teacher in an art class. And so the students who were in first, in first grade were coloring, and she kept going around saying, color within the line, color within the line. <laughs> and I just kept thinking, why? Mm. Or this idea that often when we are asked questions as teacher or leaders, we give answers. And what I do instead nowadays as a parent, I answer with questions mm-hmm. and allow uh, my son or my daughters to try to arrive at the answer on their own. And mm-hmm. so try to find the small ways in which you can really keep that curiosity alive. And that is, in effect, modeling inquisitives, uh, inquisitiveness, right? That's exactly right. It's a first important step that we can all take as leaders, which is, or as parents, or as partners, let's model rebelliousness, and in this case, curiosity for others. Let's be the one who asks why questions or what if questions. In fact, you recommend having whole days devoted to those very questions. How does that work? How do you actually do that? I was really intrigued by the idea that uh, in a lot of organizations, curiosity seems to be shut down. And yet there is so much potential that we're missing out on when curiosity is shut down. And so I uh, ran some intervention in a couple of organizations where the idea was to have why days. So you receive a message or an email at the beginning of the day uh, where you're asked to think about the why a few times throughout the day. So I thought Mm. that it would be a good reminder to have on top of mind, since often, again, we get onto our to-do list, and it's difficult to keep that sense of wonder alive. So what happened? What did you discover? So what we discovered is that when we have such reminders, we are actually, in fact, more likely to stay curious, and all sorts of good things happen. So we perform better in our jobs. We also form stronger connections with our colleagues at work. So sometimes the curiosity may Uh be asking you about your day or learning something about your job. And we're also more likely to come up with creative ideas. That's such a great nudge for moving people uh, to just a little bit more open, more curious. And uh, I I look forward to trying that myself. That's a a wonderful suggestion. What's the most important idea that emerges from your research that you want to make sure our listeners know? We talked a little bit about the beginning, and it's really about the idea of thinking about rebels the wrong way. So the book is really about rule-breaking as a constructive rather than a destructive force. Rebels are people who really challenge the status quo in ways that drive positive change. So that's a really important uh, idea. Mm -hmm. And also, hopefully, shifting the thinking about the fact that we all have these talents, and it's just a matter of bringing them out more often. So when I talk to leaders, I often talk about a quote from the Italian sculptor and artist Michelangelo Buonarroti. He once wrote that sculpting is a process whereby the artist releases an ideal figure from the block of stone in which is lumbers. Mm-hmm. And if we stop for a second, that's actually quite powerful as a leadership tip mm-hmm. because it means Uh, that if we start thinking about the people around us or the people we work with as people who really have these talents, then maybe as leaders we can think of our job as 
setting the right environment for them to really bring these talents out more often. We are all Michelangelo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very last question, and we only have 30 seconds. How do you bring compassion to your working life? I, again, am inspired by what I saw in a lot of rebels. And one of the things that was true about them is that they had a lot of humility. And one way to have humility and show compassion is remind yourself that despite all the experience that you have accumulated and the knowledge that you have, there is more to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that opens you up differently in engaging for others, understanding them, and really have the intellectual humility that can keep us grounded. That's beautiful. Francesca, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How can listeners learn more about your wonderful work? They can visit the book website, rebeltalents.org. They're going to find more information about the book uh, and some guidelines on how to be a rebel. Wonderful. Thanks again, Francesca. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Harvard Business School professor Francesca Gino. So now let me offer you a challenge, an invitation to try the nudge we talked about. Two or three times in the next day, focus for a minute on why you're doing what you're about to do rather than on immediately tackling the next item on your to-do list. How does this brief pause affect your ability to see and perhaps act on opportunities for innovation? I'd love to hear what you discover if you try this little nudge, this little experiment. So get in touch with me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.